bad. That's going to be like the Trump thing that like came out 20 years later on a hot mic. Clay on public television saying it was locker room talk. <laughs> I swear I didn't mean it. Alrighty, and we're rolling. Okie dokie. Alright, we're back. Yes, Roman, once again. Um, when was the last time? The last time was at the Coyote Fest or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I We just caught up over coffee a little bit ago. Do I look like ridiculous with this thing up here? And I can just turn yours down. Some no. No, it's just... Uh, it messes with my equilibrium and like when everything is kind of drowned out like this. It, it is kind of anxious. strange. It makes you feel like you're like, I don't even know, but like kind of isolated from the environment or something. Yeah, it makes me feel like I'm underwater a little bit. Uh-huh. I don't enjoy that. <laughs> but thank goodness we got the delay out of it from that first one. Because that was so weird. You would just be like speaking and it like short circuit your mind. It was like, <laughs> okay, it sounds weird, but um, the, de- the delay was like one second on what you were saying. So you'd hear like exactly what you said, like as you were speaking and it would just like shut you down. Yeah. I don't know how to describe it, but there's certain, um, I've had headphones that do that before. Not like the headphones themselves were doing that, but there was an app that was really popular for a while that would do that. Really? Um, just to mess with your speech to show you that you couldn't speak if you were hearing yourself in that like delayed manner. Supposedly, Um, if you listen to the same word over and over again, you'll like start hallucinating or like you'll start hearing different words and oh. then you'll like you can kind of like zone out or get like hypnotized by it yeah i've i've kind of encountered stuff like that like in my psychology class you talked about thing where if you hear the same phrase over and over again you'll start to hear music with it like really? almost, well not like you won't hear like a backtrack like some Bach <laughs> in the background no it'll just be like the words themselves will turn into like it'll sound like a song to you because it'll have its own cadence and you'll start to get used to that cadence and then even if it's the same cadence the whole time yep really it'll sound like some kind of loop to you like song lyrical loop yeah i think back in the 60s or 70s they were like doing experiments like that where they would just loop a word i know i read about it in lily do you know john lily john c lily what did he do he's i mean he's famous for giving acid to dolphins oh yeah okay he also invented like the sensory deprivation tanks Mm mm-hmm yeah but that was like one of his things because he messed with hypnosis too i don't know how i feel about that i i mean it's he's out like, there i wouldn't be that surprised if something like hypnosis were possible but it just does not seem to be the case yeah like, what do you think too, about it that's it'd be too useful if it were real i feel like more people would be investing in hypnotism what do you think about stage hypnotists though oh that's probably just like suggestibility yeah so, like no. if you volunteer you're probably more likely to like follow the command do you think or what not necessarily because you know i think if you're on stage the social pressure will just make you do it i think because a lot of people that volunteer they tell themselves oh i'm not going to play along right and they end up playing along and they always have like the same story like oh he actually hypnotized me but i think yeah they like act like they didn't know what was like that it was happening or something yeah but like if you just if you've ever been on a stage and you look out and see like hundreds of people looking at you god forbid thousands of people you immediately would act differently like once mm-hmm. you get off you will notice that you were saying things that you wouldn't normally say or like acting in ways that you would normally act right that's what i mean i've heard stage hypnotists go on and say that it's like not like they just like 
use like simple manipulation or like stuff like that that it's not like they're actually like have someone under hypnosis or something like that yeah do you know who mesmer but, was like robert mesmer or whatever i mean that's where like mesmerized like the word yeah. comes from right yeah it was um he was like was he healing people back in like dark ages or something like that or is this no, a different person no he was like late 1800s early 1900s late 1800s okay what was he doing he was basically working with hypnotism, but with mostly with women. Like he worked on hysteria and oh. <laughs> ways of mitigating it. Um, it turned out it was um, just like a fashion thing. So the corsets they were wearing was causing a lot of. Um, really, yeah. I thought it was like a sexual repression thing. Uh, that was Freud's theory on some of it, but it. I think most of the causes for hysteria were determined to be fainting from having too tight of a corset, so your circulation would become poor, and then you wouldn't be able to have like proper cognitive functioning at that point. Okay. They also had poor nutrition to boot. So it was right. not a great time, I guess, for women. Yeah. So what did Mesmer do? He worked on hypnotizing women into like removing their like mental illnesses. He also, um, he, oh, crap. Who is the guy that played, uh, professor Snape in Harry Potter? I can't think of his name. Off the I don't know. Head. I don't think I've even watched a Harry Potter movie. Uh, Jamie, could you look that one up for me? Yeah. Okay. Come on, Jamie. Because I know Alan oh, Rickman. Text on the job. It's it's Alan, Alan Rickman. Rickman. That's what I said. Oh, sorry. <laughs> anyway. Thanks, um, thanks, Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, he played Mesmer in a movie once, but a lot of a lot of what he did just seemed like he was having his own fun, because he did hypnotize women, and he said that just by talking to a woman, he could give them an orgasm. Yeah, he learned how to hypnotize them into. Like, I've heard people say that being they do that irrevocably sexually attracted to him. So str- that's like the same people that do like the um, like energy healings. What's that <laughs> called? Like Rika or something yeah, like that. Reiki or Reiki. Reiki. They like they like run their hands like over someone like that, and they like see so much of that. Probably is just the suggestibility of like the human mind and how how much control you actually have over your body with your mind, but you just don't access it. Yeah, I don't know how much control the body would have over the mind. I don't know. I mean, obviously, I don't think anybody really knows. Have you ever seen, um, if you sit down, it's especially easy with like a child, but you can do this with just people that are our age or even older. If you just sit down and you start talking like, oh, do you remember that one time we did this? Even though you know you never did that with that person. Mm-hmm. If you keep suggesting it, they'll eventually be like, oh, you know what? I do remember that. And they'll actually feel as if they remember that but it never happened. I've had this occur with a few of my friends before where I've said something and I've told a story and I know they were not there, mm-hmm. but they think that they were there. They're it's probably convinced. a thing just to like keep social cohesion so you don't like... Probably. Yeah, I've... What was that? I just heard a story like that where people can actually... They actually would like create memories um, and it was supposed to be an evolutionary benefit so that they didn't like have a falling out with somebody like in their like just somebody like that like they would um actually visualize things that didn't actually happen or like even make like computational mistakes or like logical mistakes and they wouldn't even realize it and they were they had them under mri and they would see like different regions fire up but they never like cognitively like knew like they never consciously knew what was going on that's strange <laughs> i wish but, i could pull the exact example up 
because it would probably make a lot more sense with the actual was there like a correlation and i guess you might not know this about the document but like in the regions that would fire in their brain with like regions that would fire if it were a memory that they consciously were aware of like having created like if they told the person to make something make a story up Mm -hmm. would the same regions fire as when the story that they had made up unconsciously or subconsciously i don't know about that it'd be strange I wish I could remember the exact I can't remember right now but I don't know a lot of those social experiments were really interesting I mean do they still run some things like that like what nah. like, what do you mean social Man, that's crazy um like the Milgram experiment type things what's the Milgram experiment that's the one I think it's this it's not the same thing as the Stanford experiment or is that a different one I think, okay, the Stanford experiment, I think, was the one where they put people in prison. They put, like, students in prison, and then they tried to see how they would act. The Milgram experiment, I think, was the one where they took people from some college, like Yale or something, and they basically put one of the people in a room, and they hooked them up to, um, like, a battery, and they told another person, if you press this button, it will, it will not electrocute, but it will shock that person. It will Mm -hmm. hurt them greatly. And um, they... They basically ended up finding that if they knew that the other person wouldn't figure out who had pressed the button, they would always press the button mm. just to do it. <laughs> That's, That's pretty, pretty funny. Yeah. Huh. Just, there was no other, nothing else was going on there just um, just to see if they would just do it just because. I, I'm assuming that it was Like test. they didn't get shocked themselves or anything? No. I don't believe so. And there was no like reward for shocking the other person. No. Wasn't there a thing about how they told like they made up something and they were like it they told the person with the button like that person in there like doesn't like you or something or that person in there like oh yeah doesn't like something about you and then they like to see if they would shock them harder knowing like how bad it would hurt. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they would do it up to like it like maybe this is a different experiment but they. They, they did. They, there was no actual shock. Like there wouldn't even yeah. actually be another person. Right. They'd be like that person said something about you, and they would turn it up enough to like kill them. That's <laughs> how the Milgram experiment was. It's crazy. Was. But I don't. <clears throat> it's crazy how cruel like humans can be without, especially without social pressures like exerted on them. I guess it's weirder to me that people can do anything that seems kind or like good. Really. Yeah, Why? I, I feel like it'd be more natural to have an inclination towards just pure self-interest and like looking out for absolutely no one else other than yourself until society had formed. Like for you and me, it doesn't work the same way because we can't use that kind of ethos and get a job and like work in society and we right. can't even survive without being part of society now. But like in an agrarian society where you're all farmers, it seems like it would be the best thing to do to just kill everybody that threatened you in any way. And just be hmm. the strongest person around, basically. I'm, I mean, I think some of that probably went on. That's probably a lot of the, like, tribal battles or, like, uh, biblical Old Testament, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> fightings and stuff. But I think you would still want a strong society, like, around you, though. And then go and fight the outsider. Well, if you have no idea what society would be like, I feel like mm-hmm. it'd be very natural to be very adverse to it. Hmm. That's very, that's really difficult because there I mean there is such an advantage of being in a pack or being in numbers, especially for humans. Like humans on their own, I don't think are very 
they wouldn't really survive without a community. Well, I think that's kind of what the family structures are for. I guess like if somebody shares your blood, you're more inclined to, or more accurately, your DNA, you're more inclined to help them out, do things for them. You could have packs like that yeah. that are family based rather than just species based, I guess. Mm-hmm. Whatever you want to say. That made me think of like in other primates, the high levels of infanticide and stuff like that. That's pretty oh, wild. Yeah. yeah, gorillas are almost like completely killing themselves. Mm-hmm. They just go after the children of others. I've heard even bears do that a lot too. Yeah, male bears can't be around their own kids even. Yeah. So they get really, really aggressive for some reason. Well, it makes the females like go into heat, doesn't it? Or like the aggression of a male? No, a killing of a child. Maybe. I don't really know. Yeah, I thought I'd heard that maybe. That they go in and kill like rivals' children and then mate with the females be interesting well i've heard that females after having a child will take it away from the male mm-hmm. as far away as possible because the male will kill its own kid mm. and i know that doesn't are... make what would the point in that be that's um, so strange to kill its own child yeah i don't know it could be something there there is um in like mandrills the um a female will basically trick other males into so once a female gets pregnant it'll go around um, I think it's mandrills, but the, it'll basically go around and mate with a bunch of men so mm-hmm. that they can't tell whose child she's carrying. Right. So it tricks all of them. So none of them will go after the child, but it could just be like the bear. I mean, there's theories that that happened in know. tribal humans as well. Uh, like polyandry, like one woman mating with a lot of men mm-hmm. and that they would all raise the child because they didn't know whose it was. For those, it's like really common in certain farmer societies where they'd have like brothers. Because mm-hmm. they knew that like w- both of the brothers couldn't mate and they couldn't both get like the land that their father had. So they would just stick together with one wife mm. and have uh, children. Yeah. Yes. That's, I mean, I guess agrarian society is like a straight, like that was probably where everything started to really split from pre to that. Like, I mean, that's where you get probably all like possession of private property and accumulation of wealth and I would assume, more society forming. Have you ever read anything from Thomas Hobbes or John Locke from when um, like the Americas were first discovered and they're like writings on property? No. Well, I've, I mean, Basically. I've like clips of the Leviathan, but oh yeah, nothing in depth. Um, there were a lot of passages. It was basically, I think, particularly John Locke was of the opinion that because the Native Americans didn't have the same kind of formal systems that we do, that they didn't have property like we mm-hmm. do, um, because they hadn't acquired it like monetarily or through the transfer of goods, typically, and they didn't lay claim to any land because they just lived nomadically. So that's how they basically reasoned to the idea that it was just okay to take their land, right? Because it wasn't their land; it was nobody's land. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that was just creating a reason to go yeah, take the post hoc reasoning yeah i definitely think it was but it, yeah it, he made an effective argument for it right i mean um yeah yeah i think a lot of that was probably to take it but i mean it is interesting private property is what basically the whole capitalist system is able to that's why it's able to function yeah really most of our economic systems if you took that away i don't know what I mean, you wouldn't really have 
system at all. Um, Do you just have a communal thing? Some form of kind of yeah, I don't know what I don't know how you would distribute things at that point. But yeah, that's I, a lot of the people. Even now, we're talking about. Um, well, I told you I was in Europe, so I was kind of some of the um, seminars there were on degrowth, which is basically an economic philosophy to end GDP growth, um, and even to like cut into it in some things. But they were talking about, in some ways, like the decommodification of certain things, like land or, um, say, like food, water, like any food and drink, um, land, healthcare, things like that. So I, the thing with that is I just don't know where they think your food's going to just come from if you're not really pay, if it's not a commodity yeah there are certain aspects of that that would make sense i guess like getting rid of something like bottled water which is just absurd that that even exists really uh, yeah like disposable bottles of water but um it's like reduce that kind of commodity but there would always have to be some way in which you're paying for that kind of thing like your necessities yeah i think the idea would maybe just be that it's like a socially funded funded by the community but well wouldn't the individual still be paying into it yeah through taxation yeah that wouldn't really help anything no i don't i don't think so either i guess yeah the idea would be maybe that if there's not as much private property there'd be less greed in your system but i don't know that that would pan out I don't know. I, it's, I feel like being greedy is kind of built into being human or being a mammal, really. Like, Maybe. Isn't that like, that's like one of the primary things that the serotonergic system regulates is your um, drive to collect hmm. and like gather resources. So you just want to have a bunch of stuff because it makes you feel like you have greater chance of survival if you're surrounded by things. Mm-hmm. Everybody, I mean, then people always point to like dolphins or bonobos, things like that, though. And say that they're more well, or that they, um, I don't know, kind of care for each other more. They're more communal. They are less more jealous ethical. creatures, maybe. I don't see that. I think that people take like particular instances of them being like that. Especially bonobos are just hedonists. They just sit around and, like have sex all day. <laughs> I don't see how they're right. good. They're good people. Around. Yeah, I think that a lot of the a lot of people like to run with that and say that. That's like a case for polyamory and humans and stuff, and that they yeah. they're not as jealous of creatures or whatever. But there's still like plenty of reports of violence in bonobos, and mm-hmm. they're not they're not perfect creatures, right? But are not perfect ethically, like people assume. And with dolphins, dolphins have been known to like rape a lot of other things. Humans, like right? Rape. Yeah, they yeah. try to rape humans. Maybe I don't know if anybody's ever actually been raped by one, but. But they, like, attack trainers and stuff at mm-hmm. certain areas, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's strange. <laughs> I've also heard dolphins will take people into the pot, like, surfers and stuff like that, or people snorkeling. Like, they'll kind of, like, welcome them into yeah. their pod. Yeah, dolphins kind of like people. Mm-hmm. 
back to take a break. All right, we got to take a break. Oh, I remember what I wanted to discuss with you. Okay. That book I read over there that was about, um, I think I maybe texted you about it. It was about lost manuscripts um, that a book collector found. Like, um, he was actually a scribe for the Catholic Church, like in the 14 or 1500s. It was um, like the Voynich manuscripts. No, it was on the nature of things, Lucretius. Oh, Lucretius on the nature of things. Yeah. Um, he found it in a monastery, and it was like the only copy left in Europe. And he ended up copying it and spreading it around. And I guess it kept like a lot of ideas alive. It had a lot of um, Epicurean yeah. philosophy like in it. And it like really spurred off like a lot of problems with the church. And it was so crazy because he was, he was like, the head scribe like directly under the pope his name was Paggio, something like that but he was just a antiquities collector and he would like go out to these monasteries to try to find books and have them copied and it was just it's really an interesting book because it, it was a book about books and how they changed the course of time like lost lost manuscripts and stuff and it was really, I mean, you don't really think of ideas like being that um, powerful, I guess, now because everything's kind of open and like easily accessible. But that was like the last vein of a lot of that um, philosophy, a lot of the Epicurean philosophy. And it was like really, I mean, a lot of it was basically heretical depending on um, how strict the Pope at the time was. Yeah, at least it its effects certainly were i mean that's where most of modern physics comes from like that atomic theory atomism was in it yeah yeah it comes from democritus which went through epicurus and to lucretius which i think he's the only one that really wrote extensively on it so well all of that book is pretty much a poem because mm -hmm. that's just how they wrote at the time so it's kind of difficult to get anything concrete from it yeah it does talk a lot about um like atomism like atoms floating through the void I had no idea that was an idea from yeah. that. The atoms were an idea from Greek times. Yeah. That's insane. It was, it originally came from Democritus and this one other guy, I'm going to say like Lucius or something. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, but they just had it to oppose like the other metaphysical theories of the time, mm -hmm. like monism and different pluralisms. And it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like they knew that atoms existed. He just posited that if you kept breaking something down, eventually you'd get to a point where you couldn't break it any farther. Right. And that would be an atom, which mm -hmm. is what atom means, like, unseparable mm -hmm. or separable. The, yeah, I know it was funny to see how the Catholic Church kind of danced around with it, too. Like, for a while they outlawed it, and then for a while they actually took atomism on and used it as a way of describing, like, is that called the transubstantiation? Or what is it when, um, like, the bread and the wine, they they use that to say that the bread and the wine was actually, like, the body and blood of Jesus of Jesus Christ and that because it was this, made of the same atoms. <laughs> and that was, like, official church doctrine for, like, several years, like, maybe a couple of decades. That's pretty weird. They used it to explain that, yeah. Hmm. But then it went from there and it went into it kind of started touching into the Protestant Reformation because a lot of the 
Catholics at that time, at least the people high up in the social structure, were really pretty um, uh, secular. So a lot of them were doing sciences and humanities and stuff. And in the fifteen hundreds, yeah, that well, it really shaped. I mean, you hear about the Dark Ages. I don't think they were actually like completely devoid of reason and thought and no. stuff like that. I think mostly you just saw like a bit of a decline from high Roman, high Greek culture. Yeah, so it was like just after the Golden Age and uh, the Middle East for knowledge mm -hmm. in yeah. India. Yeah. Another thing I really got interested in, I started because there would be these heretics and they'd call them before tribunals which were called diets so there were all these different diets which were basically they would gather the whole there's a the holy roman empire formed after the roman empire collapsed the pope was the head of it um and he's basically elected but then there were two colleges which were basically legislative bodies and there's actually an electoral college which i guess is where it ins inspired our electoral college but it was made up of delegates from all the different like regions and countries. There were like independent states within the Holy Roman Empire, and they would send their own delegates to go and vote on things. So the Holy Roman Empire was about all of Central Europe. It went from Italy all the way up, like about German German area, a little bit north, just the whole central. And then um, I think France was also included in it. But they ended up having basically a complete legislative body. They would vote on. A lot of the matters and they ended up taking a lot of the power away from the pope um but then it yeah it went into the protestant reformations and kind of some of the trials of heresy you ever heard the quote from voltaire he said the holy roman empire was never holy nor roman nor an empire yeah because he just said it was like discoherent political bodies mm -hmm. um and hedonists basically well that's i mean they would write satires, people working in in the Vatican about how terrible it was. I mean, they would have apparently just brothels, drunkenness, like just right in the Vatican. Any excess, any pleasure, any hedonism was available right there. And just total corruption of power. There was one pope, and I can't remember. It might have been like a Pope Alexander or something of that nature. But he, um, he had like a, a predecessor that he was very competitive with and he always wanted to take the papacy from him, but he never could. So he, after the guy died and he became Pope, he had his body dug up so he could have a mock election. And he won the election because obviously the, other, <laughs> the candidate was dead. And he had him like in the, um, I don't know what their primary cathedral would have been, but he had him like sitting in the throne and he had his body dragged out, beaten and thrown into a river ended up finding it later and it's it was put back in the crypts i think that is the one i mean it's just insane some of the rhetoric they would use to get around some of their just completely like brutal and vile um actions that they would take yeah that's i don't know it's hard to especially with some of the recent allegations um of sexual abuse and things like that it's it's kind of crazy that the Catholic Church has still survived to this day and is as powerful as it is. I mean, it's lost a lot of influence, but still. It's amazing to me that they allow the Vatican to exist as like an independent city-state. 
Like it's its yeah. own thing. Yeah. With its own power or centralized power. Did you see they just, um, <laughs> they were investigating a murder case from like the 80s or 90s and they just found a whole like building, like they closed it off with like a brick wall, but this whole area full of bones in the Vatican. Really? Like just old bones, like tons of bodies that they just, nobody knows how old they are, or like where they're from, but they were just dumped in there. <laughs> It's huh. insane. But no, being over in Spain, there was a lot of, there was some Roman influence there. Like they had the original Roman walls um, and they had some of the remains, like they had part of a city that they kind of, they kept it actually, but they had some of the old um, like baptism pools and like uh, wineries, things like that. But it's just crazy to see and some of the artwork there was Roman and it was all religious works. And it's crazy just to see how much like Christianity has changed, like from its roots or from its relatively early stages till now. That's interesting. Didn't most of like the Roman civil war take place or not most of, but a lot of it take place over by the edge of Spain. So like Pompey had all that. I area think so. Yeah. Caesar had to come and conquer it. Yeah. The, the area of Barcelona had been taken over. I mean, it had been under, well, it was independent, like tribal. The Romans had it for a while. Um, Islamic groups had it for a while. I think it was independent again. And I think Germanic tribes maybe came in after uh, the fall of Rome. I'm not entirely sure about that. but And then even up until, I mean, the dictatorship in Spain just ended in, I think, the 80s. Really? Yeah. So they're only, a lot of the people I was talking to, they're only one generation out from, like their parents lived under a dictatorship or at least grew up under a dictatorship. So there's, I mean, there's a lot of like kind of political angst over there still. Because um, that region, Catalan, they, they still want to, they want to be independent from Spain. And so just, I think it was four years ago or something, they signed a referendum to leave and everybody that signed it like most of the politicians that led the effort were exiled or jailed so oh, wow it still is a big thing over there imagine if they did that to quebec yeah did quebec motion they when did that happen in 95 they had a referendum and they're trying to have another one now i think are they just because they're french speaking they are like they have, do they have a different culture or what i don't know exactly i guess they have a different culture probably mostly because of the language barrier but they also have like there are a lot of political differences between the people in Quebec and elsewhere in Canada, I suppose. But there were also several provinces. The ones that are like right along the border um, of like North America and like the Midwest mm -hmm. that said that if Quebec left, they would just try to join America. Because really? there'd be no point in having Canada anymore. <laughs> That's crazy. And how much of see what role does they're technically part of the British Commonwealth, right? I guess, yeah. Like, I was talking to some people from Australia, and they were like, yeah, we're part of the Commonwealth. What What even... Is that just like, if they go to war, they go to war with them? Or is there is there any other, I like... Know if it, I don't think there is, like, a military obligation. Because I don't, like... I just wonder what that even means anymore. Um, It means the queen is on their money, <laughs> I guess. I, I think, technically, the queen or the royal family can seize power in those places or have like really? some kind of veto power but i 
I don't think it's great. Well, I don't even think the royal family really has much say in Britain anymore, do they? I think if they wanted to, they could, but it, I th- they'd probably be shut down. Yeah. So, like, on paper they do, but mm-hmm. they never do anything. Really not. I, I have no idea how that works. It's it's crazy just to, like, just the last 200 years of history, like, from the imperial, like, just crazy imperialism of European nations to being shrunk all the way back, like, through the world wars. and so Now we're on to globalism. Global- <laughs> globalism is... I don't. It it really is kind of sad when you're in some of those places and you start you see like the same huge chains. Like I know that's not that's not like the core of globalism, but that's like a side effect of it, kind of. Yeah. It just I think it's really good, but it's just like kind of a things could maybe get too homogenized with oh. globalization. Yeah, that's one of the things that I really don't like the homogenization of culture. Like if you if you ever seen the picture of the like the the Great Pyramid of Giza and the nearby pyramids, it's right next to a KFC. <laughs> Are you serious? Like, yeah, like half a mile away. That's terrible. If you're at the pyramids, you can see the KFC. It's like completely, and just beyond that, it's like a whole metropolitan area. Like the the history has kind of been neglected, and they just allow it to be commercialized. But uh, that's kind of how it is around the entire world. If you go on like the Snapchat map, yeah, you can just click somewhere and see people's stories. Mm-hmm. If you go to Africa, there'll be people that are just doing what you do in America and like speaking English, but like broken English. Uh, I went to South Sudan one day expecting to see no stories, like no offense to South Sudan, but I was thinking who has a phone in South Sudan. And I clicked there and there were four stories in a row where the caption was just lit or this is lit. It's so crazy. Yeah. That's what, I think the internet has done like a great job. Like it's probably good that we're connected, but I I have seen just like a crazy homogenization of culture, and it's kind of it's really strange. I don't know that it's good for us. I don't even know if it's an homogenization of culture, or just an eradication of it. Like, is there any culture right. left if everybody's it, just doing the same things? And everything seems to be based around commodities now like whatever culture is it's mass produced Mm -hmm. like nobody has paintings in their house that are originals anymore they always have some reproduction of um whoever so what the great wave yeah (laughs) it's one everybody has you have one is it like the japanese front yeah yeah exactly um everybody has a starry night too usually like some van gogh and a lot of people have some random dadist painting and they try to imbue it with meaning (laughs) Oh, that's uh, the art movements that took place in Barcelona were pretty impressive too, or at least they were kind of offshoots from what was going on in France at the time. But there, I mean, the the art museums there were just amazing. Um, had a lot of I, I, we went to the Picasso museum and it was all like his earlier works, so nothing really incredibly famous by him. But it was cool to see the progression. Uh, same with Miro. Do you know Joan Miro? Yeah. Yeah, we went to... I think his museum was probably my favorite there in Barcelona. Really? Mm-hmm. It had... A, that one was really a lot of his works, like, from beginning to end. I didn't realize how many different mediums he worked in, either. I always thought of just you know, paint on a canvas, but... Like, what was the weirdest medium he used? Yarn. He did, like... 
a yarn sculpture or like an a uh, two-dimensional yarn the, like a lithograph or something? like i guess maybe maybe it wasn't even yarn it was um almost like a giant qu- like yarn quilt that hung from the ceiling it was probably 20 foot in height like probably 20 foot by like 10 foot or something like that like giant wow. um he worked with metal a lot he did a lot of metal sculptures do you know who um uh what is it agnes martin is no she was a painter in the like mid 19th century she did a bunch of stuff that was very um like minimalistic and it looked as if she did almost nothing to every canvas she painted you'd have to like look close they'd be like fine lines and they'd mm-hmm. usually just be very like orthogonal and like there was one that she did one of her like most famous works and i don't know why it's just an enormous grid and seeing it in like a photo when you go on google images it looks like nothing you would ever even think of as art but it's enormous it's like 30 feet tall by like 20 feet mm-hmm. and um i think that's the only appeal of it just I don't the really size understand it. yeah yes I, I suppose there might have been some message behind it but yeah i'm not too sure i, I a lot of art things tend to confuse me and I tend to just assume it's somewhat arbitrary. Right. I think a lot of them, I think they were just trying to break down barriers in art and trying to explore different things. I think eventually they hit a point where like realism was so like hyper-realistic that there was not really that much more room to expand, especially with like photography coming and stuff. Like, I don't know. You can only make a still life so real probably and they probably got bored of it and i think also i wouldn't be surprised if world war one had a big influence on a lot of those art movements coming coming up definitely Um, surrealism i think i think people were really just kind of broken after world war one like kind of lost faith in a lot of things and um and tried to look for meaning maybe in different ways what (laughs) he just like yawned to what? To the next thing. Oh. Well, I guess we can just take it here. Then. <laughs> yeah, right. We'll take a break. What were we talking about previously? Art. Art. We always come back to the same topics on here all the time. Huh? You like art. I do like art. Yeah, I think art's important. I think I've already went on that rant before, what, too. What's important about art to you? I think it's just a way of expressing yourself deeper than words i suppose or yeah it's a way i think a lot of it is important culture i think a lot of it is like cultural commentary on what's good in our society but mostly what's wrong in our society same thing with say like comedy which i I mean i view like comedy and music and actual like painting or whatever is art i view like a lot of different things as art but I think a lot of them are just commentary on our culture and how we can do better, I guess. Do you think it'd What's be possible wrong? or it, that it is possible to have any form of complex like thought or apperception without language? Yes. What would thought be without language? I mean, I think I think it would just be f- a form or a like a feeling almost. A feeling? Yeah. Like a perception? sort of feeling or a feeling like an intuition it's a sort of like an intuition i mean i think there's things that 
you can think that aren't words. I know you can have thoughts that are. You can have visual sh- thoughts. Visual, or usually reduce them to words. Like you, yeah. can, you can see something. I can like, I can v- like very vividly imagine something being right in front of me, but I can't really comprehend it or do anything with it without language. I don't right. Think. But I think there's a lot of things that language can't capture, though, either. Yeah, I'd say that's definitely true. Um, I think what art, if it's good art, I think it can break through um, maybe barriers that you've set up as well. Like it'll kind of slip through your, like during your active day, like your conscious mind, I think you have like so many barriers because you're so busy or you've already like decided like how you think or like what your value structure is. I think good art is able to like slip through your defenses a little bit and kind of like make you like reevaluate. I suppose that makes sense, but I don't think that kind of idea would hold true for all things that you would consider to be art. Like, is that what you take to be the definition of art is something that is capable of doing that? I know. I mean, I think there's lots of different ideas of art. I mean, I think when most people think of art, they think of drawing or painting or like a visual representation, I guess. And it could be very common. I mean, it can be anything. It could be like an advertisement or any media that's just commonly used that you're just like barraged with like daily. Well, does that count as art? I would think for something to count as art, the intention would be very important. Like I don't think graphic design would typically count as art because mm-hmm. it's usually intended to just manipulate people. Right, but... If you think about that, that is a way of slipping past someone's conscious thinking this is to get true, them to purchase something. It's not to make their consciousness slip past itself, though. It's to make its own message subliminal so yeah. that the individual does not consciously recognize it. Mm-hmm. And what you were saying about like good art, it almost seems as if it would make the conscious structure turn against itself rather than just like zipping past it completely. Right. So to make you reevaluate your own conscious thought. Yeah. Yeah. Some of it, I think, is almost like it can almost be like seeds too, where it like gets sown in your mind and it maybe won't like something won't be activated immediately, but then later it might like something else will trigger it or something and it'll kind of come back and change the way you think. Yeah. I, I've kind of had that experience. So, yeah, there are things that I take as being um, capable of doing exactly what you said, like pushing past the barriers that you set up around yourself to like limit your attention and whatnot or your consciousness. But, um, I usually, the only things that do that for me or that seem to do that in general, in my experience would be like poetry Mm. or things that actually do have a sort of verbal aspect Mm -hmm. because it's much easier to look at something like that and say, okay, well this, this, and this tells me that this is the meaning behind this. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're looking at a painting, it's so varied and you could never really know the intentions of the author. Not that they're really relevant, I guess, to what the meaning may be. Cause you might have your own subjective meaning right. put into it, but it seems like there is absolutely no way in which you could say the meaning that you're ascribing to it is actually there in the painting. No, a hundred percent. I agree. But can you do that with poetry? I think you could, it would be much easier to make like a deductive argument to say like, this is in this poem than it would be to say. But in some ways in to sit and logically break down a piece of, literature poetry you're kind of ruining a certain yeah like magic to it or whatever that's kind of a bitch 
um, which to me, like same thing because naturally I'm more inclined to words. Like I'm not very good at manipulating like art form in the visual sense. I'm much better with words and I receive words better and I am pretty logical. So I do try to break it down. But I think sometimes there's something to trying to not logically deconstruct it. I feel like that is valuable. It seems to me as if people, at least in, I don't know, like higher intellectual caste of society or in like academia are starting to push or have been pushing for about the past hundred years since like logical positivism, that things like art and music and all of that, it's just nonsense to sedate people. And that really anything that is not based in hard logic is useless. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you that I think that that idea is wrong, but I don't know if there's a way of like expressing what's wrong about it. And I don't, I don't take all art, art to be equal in any way. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know exactly what's, well, I think your art, a lot of it, it's almost like the soul of your, your logic is like a mind, your mind, but you can't be all in your head. Like, in my opinion, I think you need to be a more like holistic being that you need to have some sense of the physical world. And then you need to have some like a deeper, I don't know how, what you would describe it to, I guess soul not now i'm saying that could originate from wherever in your body i don't think it's like necessarily an ethereal thing um but i think there's definitely a component to soul and humans that is touched by art do you think that people have souls like as an actual in thing? some manner I'm, i don't know that i that you could separate it from the body um i don't know Okay. Um, but I think that it's like a deeper, if you want to just say like subconscious or like almost, it's not emotional because I think emotional is too like reactional, but something like seated, like maybe deeper within a person beyond like the reactional of emotions or just pure logical thought. That's something that's kind of, I don't want to say irrational, but almost irrational and deeper seated so would you consider yourself to be something like a dualist like a substance in what dualist? sense well that there is, while there is something physical about being alive there's also something non-physical that imbues us with life or that imbues life with meaning possibly yeah but it could it could be rooted in physical what would separate that from just the thought that we already experience or like I think it's another another level of thought. So basically, like I don't think like you access it in your typical conscious thinking or typical logical thinking. So kind of like the unconscious mind and like Freud or Jung or any sure yeah psychoanalyst kind of idea. yeah I think Jung maybe relates it to the soul sometimes. Yeah, I think he only does it like metaphorically though. I don't. Right. It's not really clear what Jung believes in terms of whether there is a soul or like if he was religious or anything. Mm -hmm. like I recently bought a copy of Ion. So I've been rereading that a bit. That's pretty interesting. Right. So I don't know. I don't know how much utility I think Carl Jung has. I don't know if it's just something that piques my interest 
so I enjoy reading it or if there if there's actually any truth to what he's saying. I, mean, I think if you want to talk about poetry, I think a lot of his stuff is almost more poetical, almost more of an art form than it is truthful commentary on psychology or whatever. But I don't know. I think there's value to be gleaned, especially in, I mean, his works on dreams and shadows and things like that, I think are kind of important. Yeah, I've always... I think his work on dreams is what interests, interests me the most just because I've always been interested in dreams. Mm-hmm. I always, I, I, you kind of made me wonder if the idea of the unconscious in Freud was like, um, it, if it came from Plato, because Plato had this idea of the tripartite soul and it was pretty much like common belief in Greece as we understand that mm-hmm. the um, what made a person was composed of three parts of a soul. And it would basically be the logical portion, the appetitive portion, and the emotional portion. And they located these things in like different areas, like your appetitive portion or your appetitive soul was in your stomach and then your thymodius was in your heart and your like logical um, processing, I think they put in your head. Yeah. I could be wrong. Um, I mean, I like to break things down to that just because, I don't know, I think maybe it's, some of it is the structures I've been brought up in and I think it's also like a really good way of explaining it whether it's accurate or not of having three components to yourself of a body, mind, and soul or something like that. Um, and I, th- I mean, I think they're so interconnected that you can't really separate them, but there's definitely competing urges and thoughts and desires within a human person. Right. But I think most people, at least in modern academia, would reduce that to just like hypothalamic fu- function versus like a superior cortical function. That's true, probably. But that doesn't, again, that doesn't like capture the, like you can know that, but I don't think it captures like the full idea behind it, I guess. Have you ever thought it was strange that no matter how much knowledge you acquire, it never really has an effect upon your body? Like I always wondered what if, actually having an understanding of different regions of your brain or of the fact that you're comprised of cells would give you would give you some ability to like manipulate those things in your body that you didn't realize were even there before mm-hmm. but it doesn't it, it absolutely opens no doors for you in, t- in terms of your own body maybe yeah, your own mind strange. obviously but like you can have full awareness of every part of your body but it will never help you manipulate it more other than like um immediately like through tools and instruments and things um one area where i think that might be challenged is actually through lift like lifting things you can actually have like the same amount of muscle mass but you can recruit more you can fire more effectively and lift heavier things almost yeah and it's more of a mental exercise than it is muscular exercise yeah because you always like unconsciously restrict yourself Mm -hmm. because you know you like well you don't know but your body knows that it can't exert itself that much or you'll be out for days and you can't afford to be out for days Mm -hmm. so you'll never allow yourself to get to that point of that like that's basically what adrenaline is like it doesn't make you any stronger it just just reduces your yeah your um inhibition of it Uh speaking of reducing inhibition this is kind of a jump but have you um read or watching documentaries on uh the effect of drugs in world war ii in world war ii which drugs um amphetamines and methamphetamines a little bit but 
So supposedly the Germans and Japanese were heavily using methamphetamines, giving them out like candy to every, I mean, they were like in the rations for every soldier. And I mean, it kind of makes sense. I guess that's how most of the blitz was kind of energized or whatever, because they could go two or three days and the, you know, run in the tank without really burning out and just cover so much ground. Um, but then I think it, I mean, it caused problems because methamphetamines, they started getting really anxious and nervous. They couldn't sleep. So when they couldn't sleep, it just like broke, started to break them down. Um, and apparently the British and Americans were using the amphetamines. So they were a shorter window and they could still sleep, but then they could just use their drugs during the days, maybe get like, you know, like six hours instead of like 24 to 48 hours or whatever of effect and that it, that apparently worked a lot better for them i i've heard like a little bit about german use i didn't know the japanese or americans or british i mean think about a kamikaze i i mean i get like you have the ideals built into them but i think you still almost have to be a little drugged up to go fly your plane into someone yeah, but i don't think amphetamines would give you that kind of intoxication be able to do something like that really yeah it's like pretty much all amphetamines do is increase the level of norepinephrine in your brain and dopamine but like slightly for dopamine i mean enough to where it's an addictive drug but not enough to where it's like absolute euphoria or anything like that but increasing dopamine just makes you really really alert like mm -hmm. kind of on edge mm -hmm. um i mean we kind of do that now we're very very lenient with how we like distribute Adderall and Ritalin, Ritalin for a while. Yeah. That is something, isn't it? That we, I mean, there is a probably pretty good portion of American population on amphetamines. Oh, yeah. I, I don't know exactly off the top of my head, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was around like 20%. That, probably that, just below that. It's, it's so strange how we, we choose what drugs that we're okay with in the U.S. Yeah, I know. It always makes me think of... um brave new world by aldous huxley mm -hmm. but i i tend to think like if he were right about the way in which society would be in the future the drug that he referred to in the book would be something more like what our phones are for us they keep us more sedated than any drug really ever could or like or not phones in general but like internet technology anything like that it's yeah. keeping you in a position where you feel as if you have this incredible power and incredible knowledge that is unparalleled in all of history and yet you're still just as far in the dark as pretty much anybody else on it's, most issues it's really just a drain eventually a drain a drain on your res like your mental resources i think phones are yeah because you come up you come across so much media like constantly most of it it's all junk you spend so much time filtering through stuff that you end up just kind of wasting your time and i think you only really have so much I don't know, like almost like mental capacity at one time that you have access to. Yeah. And I think it uses up kind of a lot of bandwidth or what, whatever you would call it. There have been a few studies recently on um, like multitasking, whether people are actually capable of like cognitively multitasking. And it turns out they've found no evidence that people can do that like whatsoever. If you're doing two activities at the same time, what you're actually doing is switching between them. Mm -hmm. And so you're not focusing on the other one at a certain point in time and you're not focusing on the other at a different point in time. Which basically leads to you having like half of an understanding of each thing right which is not effective like, at right. all, but i would agree with that people still try constantly um 
<laughs> I, I don't know. I really, I kind of have the, an idea that people are actually becoming worse, like almost like devolving or what whatnot. Like I think on average people are becoming weaker physically and I think they're becoming less intelligent. Weaker physically on average? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Really? Then past generations? Maybe in like the past hundred years, but like I think if you went back any time before the um, like beginning of the twentieth century, people would be far stronger Just on average now than ever because, because of food, weightlifting, food, nut- nutrition, weightlifting were larger in size than we were previously. People mm-hmm. never used to really exercise like that. They would just live their lives, and that would be exercise. Like mm-hmm. you never really see paintings of people with six pack abs or anything like that because they never had muscle like that. People were never. I don't think I know that people were ever that large. Unless they were like athletes, and that was a very select few people. Hmm. And even then, I, I'm not sure what they would really do for a workout. I don't know. I, I guess there's really no way to tell, is there? No. Exactly. But, but um, I, I think intelligence-wise, I think we're declining as well. Yeah. I think but, we all have more like access to intelligence, but I think like our own cognitive abilities declined because of that i think people are more closed-minded than they ever were before i think any argument that anybody has at any point in time will always just end up deferring to google and then nobody will ever actually put any more thought into it than that it's just whatever google says that's what it is they're just credulous Mm. it's it's like worse than what people thought christianity was for a while in my opinion because oftentimes it's wrong yeah that is kind of a strange what's up we're out of time Take a break. I want to ask you right now, like right after you said break. <sighs> okay, so we're we we're just that. Google is God. Yes. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think um, maybe creative thought or like reasoning skills have declined. Like there might be more general knowledge available to everyone, but less thinking. <laughs> like average IQ has increased. People attribute that to nutrition. Really? Because it's plateauing. But at the same time, it's not entirely clear whether it, IQ measures what we mean when we say intelligence, uh-huh. like ordinary people as opposed to like psychologists may just be the kind of psychometric thing that appeals to the people that study it when in reality it doesn't pertain to the actual idea of intelligence mm-hmm. how did they come up with broad like a broad iq like metric for they made, they made thousands and thousands of tests and there are different forms of iq tests but basically they would keep doing this and like they would distribute the tests to thousands of people and they would um, see which questions co-varied and they just figured out whichever ones co-varied with um basically like a uh, capacity for solving certain problems those would be the ones that they determined were uh, measures of intelligence mm. and then they concentrated all of those into a right right but how did they um sorry how do they like estimate it across populations oh uh, they take like a sample size gotcha. a lot of people oftentimes if you're if you're like arrested they'll subject you to certain psychological experiments like if you're in prison they'll take you and give you iq tests and that's they, quite a thing, isn't it? 
and if you're a student in psychology, you're constantly involved in those tests mm-hmm. and like a university and stuff. What do you think about psychology? I mean, have you ever heard of, I think we- there's, oh, it's one of my minors. So I have to like it a little bit, but I think I only like the actual study of the psyche, like the subjective study of the psyche, because most of psychology seems to suffer from the same things that like sociology and other social sciences do, where it's just like survey based and they never recreate the survey. So they just run with it and it's completely inaccurate. And also, do you know what the p-value, you know, you know, like, you know what a p-value is, right? In sciences. What about that? Or like what? Like the measure of the null hypothesis to the alternative hypothesis, like the, the percentage, the percentage that your hypothesis is accurate, basically. The acceptable p-value for psychology, I think it's Mm 0.1. It's the highest p-value for any, any field of study. It's also the same for sociology. But for physics, it's like 0.000. So basically, that's saying that your hypothesis is correct more or more often than the other sciences. Yeah. So for so basically, phys- you're kind of it's less limited. possibly you're running your experiments in a way that are going to affirm your hypothesis. Yeah, like like that's kind of confirmation bias, but like. For, for having like a 0.1 p-value for um, psychology, that basically means that they can they will publish a theory and say that it's true if it's true 90% of the time. Oh, there can be 10% okay. of the time where it's completely false, but mm-hmm. they'll still say it's true. They just neglect to like mm-hmm. acknowledge that. No other field of science is like that whatsoever. I don't know why it's like that exactly. I've heard a few reasons. There's also... Um, With the social sciences, I just I think they kind of are just running away. I mean, it's not a hard science really. Like you're saying, a lot of the um, experiments are not repeated. I think you get about anything published in a in a peer reviewed journal in social sciences. Yeah, there was that one guy that got a um, yeah a philosopher that got the like dog sexuality paper. That published. one was great. Queer performativity of dogs. And yeah, uh, that was. <laughs> you're, you'd like this. There was one philosopher in like I don't know, like 2012, published a paper, and it was called the causal effect of absence entire paper was blank there was nothing there it was just a title and he published it the the same group that got the queer performativity in dog parks paper passed through they they did one they took passages of mein kampf and they removed jewish and put in white male yeah and like they almost i think they almost got that one through too yeah it's insane (laughs) but (laughs) i think they i mean they went overboard with that one They were not the first ones to do that either. There was mm-hmm. somebody in the '90s that did it. I can't. I can't remember his name. He was a physicist, and he published a paper in like a very popular magazine that was just complete nonsense. None of it was accurate, and they they published it. Right well, that's away. that's what like I. An I mean, academic magazine, not just any. But I've spent a lot of time this summer. Like, probably half my time this summer was spent reading academic peer-reviewed journal um, articles or papers or whatnot publications, and then trying to write my own. And you really think like there's no way anyone is going to recreate like what I did. You know what I mean? It's just so much of it is just you just have to be responsible for your own thing. But somebody could definitely just make up numbers and values and kind of throw them in there. Yeah. Because I don't think anyone's really checking it. And even the peer review, they're not really diving that deep into it. They don't have enough time. They're just kind of looking to say okay like that makes sense kind of and passing it along recreation studies are like aren't getting any funding anymore because people Mm -hmm. are like oh somebody already did that we're not giving you money because they don't really understand how sciences work 
they have to run by like falsifiability but um but even with statistics you can imbue about any meaning you want into a paper what do you mean with statistics like you can run i mean you can kind of come to a conclusion regardless of what the statistical results are of a of your paper like there's certain at least in a lot of the things i see in a lot of the data sets you can pull certain things to make an argument you can make it in either way you can oh, make it in either direction you like, can like aggregating data like yeah. kind of like the wage gap thing I like sure, people yeah. reprojected the data and it came to a completely different conclusion but mm -hmm. people still are on both sides arguing for mm -hmm. it and yeah it's pretty easy to skew data like that i imagine mm -hmm. i think i don't know i just there comes to a point too where like the human mind cannot comprehend so many points of data like when you start working with sets that are so large then you come up with these metrics to try to like approximate them and to to break them down to something that's like roughly understandable for a human mind. It's like even what I was working on was small. Like it was only 2,500 points. You can't look at 2,500 points and compare them to another thing in an, an, an analysis. Like you can't. Like all I was doing was just changing things by percentages kind of throughout. and But you can't compare them like that. So you have to break them down to some metric that somebody's designed and to try to look at it through that. So I don't know. I think in science, in the sciences, there's a lot of room for, especially in social sciences and stuff that it's not clearly repeatable. Um, there's just a lot of room for error and for like kind of pushing your own bias into it. Uh, I think pretty much all sciences probably suffer from bias. So it really is no way to definitively prove anything scientific uh, other than saying, like making a statement and then running some experiment to show that the conclusion supports your statement. And even then you're not like, you're not technically proving anything. Right. You're just saying in this circumstance at this time, this worked, therefore I must be right. But it doesn't really follow logically from that, that that is true. It's, uh, it's just like the problem of induction. But um I'm gonna shift. I'm gonna shift completely on you. What do you think about um, this upcoming election? Have you followed the Democratic debates at all? Yeah, a little bit. I think it's goofy how much focus they're putting on like Democratic candidates, and pretty much anybody outside of the Democratic Party has not been even recognized as running yet. Such as? Well, I mean, I don't know many people that are even saying anything about their campaigns that have like. Like, um, there are a lot of people that are independent that are planning on running, but they're not putting in the same effort that the Democratic Party is right now. Like, I don't really understand yeah. why they're, when it's so early on, I don't understand why the Democrats are having so many debates that are pretty much leading nowhere. Like, um, like everybody keeps complaining about, it's just not the right format for that kind of thing. Like, well, there's minutes. too many people. Yeah, there, there are too many people and they each get like two minutes to talk about their ideas that are really right. complex and they can't get them all out in that amount of time. Well, that's how any debate is, it seems. Like, and that's when you get into, like, who can make the best soundbite, and it's, like, almost a popularity contest or something at that yeah. point. It's a really strange format. Um, it's really kind of strange how, I mean, our representation system right now that you listen to two people talk, like, three times for an hour. 
you vote on them and give them basically the keys, like basically the power to most of this country's military force. Most people don't even put in that much effort. They won't even watch, watch like, the, the debate. debates. They just go and vote and they pick whoever is on the party that they enjoy. That's why I think we should have like an epistocracy, something, you know, like you should have to pass a test in order to vote. Or mm-hmm. if you pass the test, then you get like two votes or your vote has more value than somebody that didn't pass the test. Right. I agree with that. They, um, I know a lot of people would have problems with that though. Yeah. I think that'd be a way, but then, you know, there's been voter discrimination of the same, cause they used to have like what ballot tests thing. and stuff like that, where they would <laughs> deny people. Um, you just can't allow that kind of thing to happen. I mean, that can, you could almost do that now, even just turn someone away at, at like the polls. But I feel like even if that did happen, it would almost be better especially because you can't really discriminate against people that way anymore because of the internet. Everybody mm-hmm. has the capacity and the ability to do as much research as they want on the candidates. Like you right. just go to the library and get free Wi-Fi or um, a free t- free time at the computer and research candidates all day long. It's probably why, personally, I don't think I'm going to vote unless I feel like really passionate about some candidate that's coming up, which uh, there are a few I kind of like on the Democratic side, but I don't usually... Like, Who do you like on the Democratic side? Right Pete Buttigieg. Really? Yeah, I think he's interesting, huh. but I don't think there'd be any chance that he would win. Right. I do I was... not like Joe Biden or Bernie Sanders at all, or um, the one woman. Um, which the like Warren? Woman. What Warren? Yeah, Warren, Elizabeth Warren. Um, yeah, I don't really like her very much either. I don't like their policies or ideas. I don't. I don't like them as people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um. Have you uh, listen? Have you heard of Andrew Yang? Yeah, Andrew Yang stuff. He's interesting. I just, I don't think he'll gain any traction or anything. No. What was um? What's crazy is Trump could win in a landslide, like if the economy stays strong. I wouldn't be surprised. Trump has the best chance. Biden's not gonna come close to him. No. Sanders won't. I mean, they're both pretty popular, but I don't think. I mean, Donald Trump. He's not popular, but I don't know if there will be a better option. I know it's crazy, but I think he really could be elected again. And it's crazy how much hatred there is for him. I mean, he says some terrible and stupid things, but usually if you ask people, like, what don't you actually like about Trump, they can't answer you. It's It's really strange. It's always about his character. Yeah. And just like ad hominems that don't. That don't really follow. Like, I get that he said some things that aren't PC or whatever you want to say, like, politically correct, but he he doesn't exactly seem to be a racist or an anti-Semite or anything like that. Like, people are claiming right. he's not, like, a violent person. He's never really done anything that vile. I mean, maybe some sketchy business practices, but to be honest, if you're in his position, you're probably going to do the same thing. Like every human being is corrupt to some extent. I don't mm-hmm. see why you wouldn't act the way that he has acted. He's right. done well for himself. So it's. I wonder how much if he's playing a fool, like kind of playing a character in some of these things. If he's actually more calculated, or if it's all just if if he's actually just winging everything. I think he's playing a character. Uh, it's hard to character. tell. Yeah. So I think he realizes that just rousing up a crowd is more important than actually putting down any great ideas on paper. Right. Like just having the spotlight like of media on you, even if it's bad, like even bad publicity is good publicity, mm-hmm. whatever the old saying is. Yeah. 
That's I think where they the racist thing the like sent let them go back to their countries or whatever, which is what everybody claims racist. Um, I think that might have actually been a smart political move. I think he was taking and cup like those are the most that's those are the most radical individuals in the Democratic Congress. And he was basically making it so that the Democrats had to claim them and by that means claim their ideology. And he almost backed them into a corner where they have to support that that crazy of an ideology at this point, which isn't compatible with like the general public right now, I don't think. Yeah, although he's also kind of driving the Republican Party to do things that they wouldn't normally do and to behave weird ways, but I don't think he really cares about that. Right, I... Ever. You know, I think if anything, it was probably good just to shake it up a little bit from someone who was, who has been in politics for a long time that was part of the kind of norm. And because, I mean, if you look at the last several presidents, they're really not good. Like no. you look at the Bushes, Clinton, what he did, even, even Obama, for as much as everyone loved him, they were still... I mean, just crazy things going on. I mean, you look at the wars, the the killings, the drone bombings, and the Middle yeah. East. Um, Supposedly, the conditions at the like um, immigration camps at the border were exactly the same then, under Obama, or even worse. Yeah, that's reports, correct so. from what I've heard. And nobody even talked about it then, or at least not publicly, or like as far. That's as I can what see. it almost turns me off to so much of like, like in my heart, I want to do good by people and be kind of like socially um, not an activist, but I want to support people and support their well-being and stuff. But then when you look at so much of politics, it like almost turns you off to that because you see they, they take something like that and they just warp it into a way to like gain power to gain political influence. And then even what's well, so like, even in social media, everybody latches on to something like that and it's like they just have to like affirm that oh i share these beliefs and it's almost like they're propping themselves up as like a superior moral character or something like that and it's like i think everybody kind of has those basic beliefs and wants yeah. to see people do better people really keep um what's what's the term like they try to turn people like Donald Trump and uh, whoever opposes them basically into a villain. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, this person. People do that to Bernie Sanders too. And they say like, oh, he wants to be a dictator of America and things. Right. Like that's not what he wants. I think everybody realistically is doing what they think is, is good. Yeah. yeah. That, was a, that was a thing from Socrates. It was like one of the most badass things in philosophy. He said, no human being would ever do something that is bad because mm -hmm. you'd never think in the moment, I'm going to do the worst possible thing right now. The Like, when you're about to do the... There like, might be some people. No, well, it depends <laughs> upon how you think of the worst. Like, they would never do the thing that is the worst for them, ever. They would yeah. never think like, oh, this is going to get me killed and there's no advantage to it, so I'm going to do it. There's things, though, I think people get really warped, though, and end up... Yeah. Like, they, I mean, they, switch, go against your... they switch moral or values. and. But when is it ever good to go and kill a bunch of people or to rape or to anything like it that? It depends upon your values. If those are the things you hold to be virtues then that is what you think is good mm -hmm. so like they go against your values but it, to that person's um from that person's perspective they're doing the best possible thing they can do in that moment mm -hmm. another big thing that has, it kind of drives me crazy 
is that everyone wants to respond emotionally to everything. Like there's no logical basis. Like I understand like, you know, you look at the border um, situation and that's something that like does have a real emotive response, but you can't, you still have to like try to go through a logical process of why it's happening, what's actually happening. Yeah. Same with a lot of areas and, um, and policy or whatnot. You still need to take a more of a logical approach, I think. Yeah. It seems that people just take that reactionary element of all things like that and use it politically. Mm-hmm. I don't think they ever... I, I, I don't know. It seems like when something terrible like that happens... They just use it to confirm the ideas that they already had, regardless of how the terrible thing would pertain to them if you just looked at it bluntly, logically, mm-hmm. I guess. That's, I don't know. I just hope... One minute. I guess in closing, um, just think about things logically. <laughs> I don't know. I think... Um, we have a lot of work to do as a society and i think right now we're we're teetering between great collapse or great boom but may i mean that's probably how it always feels yeah um but you know our economy and social cohesion are kind of wobbly right now but i don't know i have faith we're, we're gonna pull through pretty pretty well hmm. it's good to be an optimist well yeah, somewhere between optimism and pessimism. Realism. <laughs> All right, done. Get your pets spayed and neutered. <laughs>